Welcome to the Payments Podium Podcast, hosted by the payments professor himself, Kevin Olson. This podcast discusses the past, present, and the possibilities of the payments industry. Here's the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Payments Podium. I'm Kevin Olson, the payments professor, and I'm so glad to bring you part two of Fraud Indicators and what's happening. We have Paul Perry, we have Sarah Beth Majet on us, and she is magical too, I gotta say. And we've been talking about fraud indicators and some of the stories I've been sharing. It's been an absolutely incredible conversation. I know you guys had to love part one. We left part one though. Sarah was gonna share with us her favorite, the greatest fraud indicator statistic that's out there. So if you guys have been waiting for it, Here's the drum roll. And that statistic is. Employees who have been in an organization greater than six years have two times the loss when they commit fraud. It is by far more expensive for employees who have been working at an organization for a length of time for them to commit fraud. It's usually at, at least double the cost of somebody who's been there less than two years. And by cost, I mean double the loss and what's actually stolen. And the reason that is, for the most part, is because the fraud's been going on for so long, right? When somebody starts, I mean, we, we saw one that was probably no more than about $200,000 and the guy had only been there about nine months. Had he been there four years, that would have been a much larger number, right? And so it was much smaller. And so part of that is also their attempt to try to build trust over time and then commit it, right? Because they're not going to just, you know, I don't know what the environment's like. I don't know if I can do it. And, and so that's probably... What we have seen for the most part, it's, it's, you know, some of these fraud cases, some of these frauds go on for decades sometimes. Is it ever a case on- of they, they get started in the fraud and they just can't stop? Like they're, they're so deep into it that it, to, to stop it would actually get them exposed? Absolutely. Yes. And, you know, not only to stop it would be exposure, but then also they're probably living beyond their means at this point and they need that money to continue at that lifestyle, because then that would be a red flag too. So it all kind of works together. I would say this in, I I would go as far as to say in probably nine and a half out of 10 cases, people are not stealing money and then stocking it away. Right. They're, they're, they're absolutely not saving it for a major rainy day down their lifetime. It's they're, they're, they're stealing it and they're spending it right away. Um, And so a lot of the times if you go back to uh, episode, you know, part one, where we were talking about how, why people don't prosecute is for, is for that, right? Because the money's not there. So the money's not there. Now, what's, what I do think is interesting is <laughs> I'm not surprised they're not investing the money or doing something wise with it because they're stealing to begin with. That's not the most wise move right there in living beyond their means. That, that a lot of this is great stuff, though. Anything else you'd add? Okay, I would just say that too, you know, we talk about this kind of in a, with jest of living beyond their means in this way, but oftentimes it is a heartbreaking story of there's somebody sick and there's a medical expense need. Like it is not all just frivolous expense. You often see that stuff that just, you know, breaks your heart where there's such need there and they find a way to justify receiving that through their company and doing it through an illegitimate fraudulent way. And Kevin, one of the things you were talking about, and we were saying that 
the money's not there and because they spend it right away. Uh, that is sometimes why people don't prosecute. Like we talked about in part one is because there's no money to get, right? The money is already gone. And and that is one of the other reasons why prosecution usually doesn't happen is, um, you know, what are they going to do? Yes, the person may get jail time. Yes, the person may get parole or whatever it is. Uh, and maybe they have a house to sell that can try to pay that back. But if they're just straight stealing cash and using it for entertainment, there's nothing to get. So why spend the extra $50,000 is some of their mentality sometimes. So that that's something else they have to think about. I, I see that a lot in the banks today when, when they suffer fraud losses in different ways. And what will happen is they have to weigh the, how much is it going to cost me in time? How much is it going to cost me in attorney fees? Is it really worth it in many cases? What's sad is in the cases of some of the fraudsters that I, I see, you know, out on the dark web doing some of this, they also know this too. And so they know the limits they can get away with. Have you ever run into those situations where you have the internal fraudster that knows, I know I can get away with this certain amount, so I'm going to just go ahead and do it instead of going for the big poll over time? Yeah. And in most cases, you also see uh, what we call a hockey stick approach and is, and is when they start stealing stuff, they, they don't. They don't just automatically get $100,000 off the bat. They they start low and over time they see how much they can get away with. And, and in some cases we have seen where the response was, um, well, that was an error. I, I, I made I made a mistake there. Right. So now they've tested the waters and now they've said, uh oh, they're going to catch me at five. Right. So maybe I need to drop that down and I just need to do a bunch of twenty five hundreds. Right. And and so there is that instance in controls is something we haven't talked about yet, but putting a control in place that, you know, checks over a certain amount have to be signed by two people or the invoices have to be approved by two people and whatever that number is, whatever you think is comfortable, maybe lower it a little bit and, and tell people what that is, but you also have to have the opportunity to, to go and investigate. Right. So I think it was something that uh, Ronald Reagan used to say when it was related to the IRS is trust, but verify. And, and so that's the case is I'm going to trust my employees that they're not going to do anything below $5,000 but I need to go and look at that every once in a while just to make sure it's not happening. Well, it's interesting because, you know, Reagan took that from the Russians. That's actually a Russian thing in negotiation. Always trust, but verify. Oh. So I love that oh. he did that and he gets credit for it because he did say it. <laughs> I do think we would be remiss too if we didn't talk about the continuation of a conversation from part one, where we uh-huh. mentioned that, you know, a lot of people continue to employ people who have committed fraud and give them benefit of the doubt, if you will, a second chance. And I actually have the statistic for that. And that was in 2020, that 66% of the cases examined by the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, that employee was terminated who committed the fraud. That means in 34% of those cases, they were kept at that organization. And that right there does not create an environment of fraud is a no-no. It creates more of an environment of susceptibility for people. And I think that is definitely something that needs to be considered. That reminds me of the old meatloaf song, uh, two out of three ain't bad. No, two out of three ain't very good in this case. If you're, if you're not actually getting rid of them and keeping them around, that's scary. We've got to talk about controls though. I know people are out there probably screaming going, all right, these stories are great. These indicators are great. What can we do to be able to stop it? You already started briefly talking about dual controls, dual controls and signing checks, dual controls on invoices. What are other controls that are out there that you recommend you need to have this in place if you want to be able to stop or detect fraud happening in your organization. 
I think one thing that's really important is to look at the general ledger that you're using. And the vast majority of them have something called like an audit trail functionality that can oftentimes be turned on and off. And so you want to first make sure that's turned on. And if the, you know, out of the box package is to have it turned on and it's since been turned off, you definitely want to figure out the mentality and the reason behind that. But certainly having that on, that can create some ability to look into things like changes in vendors or changes in customers. And you can start to see, wow, we've got vendors that our address has changed. And look, all five of these vendors, their address changed to the same thing this month. And oh, wait, that's an employee address when we do some checks, or that's a PO box. It's really close to an address that we have for an employee. And so they give you a lot of insight into things that just may trigger a, a second question. Okay. You did a great job of sneaking in another indicator there. I got to say, I caught you on that one. You know, another indicator is if you have a lot of addresses change at the same time and wow, changing it to your own address, that's kind of bold, right? At least get a PO box people. All right. So that, that is a great thing, though, that you also mentioned the audit trail functionality that's in software. I'm a believer you shouldn't be able to turn it off. You know, with the work I do with, with uh, vSoft in, in programming software is we, we actually make it you can't turn it off. It's always auditing, always on and always controlling it. Because, yeah, if they did turn it off, why? Why would you turn it off? That is a big question. What are some other controls that people should have out there and be aware of? You know, this isn't a control specifically, but it's so important that I think we need to cover it is having a hotline of sorts and making sure employees are aware of that hotline. When there is a hotline, the median losses are much lower than if there is no hotline because things maybe get brought up sooner and something unusual that stands out an employee may report that way. And so that's a big deal because in 2020, 43% of the frauds were identified through tips. And so you want to make sure that you have an environment where your employees are comfortable talking to their supervisors in a confidential nature if they do see something, or also having an anonymous hotline of sorts, because that certainly is a big, big piece of the puzzle and making sure you're educating your employees on what would constitute fraud. And I think that's important too. So like a whistleblower tattletale hotline to be able to, you know, say what's going on. You know, this does bring up a good question. I got to say though, when you are seeing this fraud take place, how often is it multiple people versus how often is it a single individual? So I would say that the majority of the ones that we see are single individuals just from the perspective of when it's when you have two people, that's called collusion. And if two people are trying to cover something up, um, it's a little bit harder to find because you're not just fighting the, the one monster. You've got two that you're trying to tackle down. Right. And, and so they're going to be playing with each other. And so that is I would say we don't see a lot of multiples just because maybe those are still going on. I, that, that's a tongue in cheek joke because there there really could still be going on. It's when you have that, you, you don't really um, you don't really find that. And so I would say that for the most part, it's it's single individuals. However, there was one case that we were working where we were investigating somebody and we started looking at payments that were being made and they were all credit card related. And in the process, we said, well, how else has credit cards? And during the, 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 the review of this one person, we found another person who was committing their own fraud and they were both going on at the same time. One was less than the other because they weren't there as long and they didn't have as high of a uh, authority level within the organization. But we were able to uncover multiple fraud cases that were happening at the same organization. Wow. That 2020 report to the nations that the certified fraud examiners puts out 
they actually break down the cases they examine by industry and looking at the banking and financial services sector, corruption accounted for 40% of the cases. And now again, it could often be corruption and cat, you know, something else like billing or larceny or multiple things could be working together. But in the cases examined, 40% of them related to the industry involved corruption, which is very closely linked with collusion. So one of the other, um, Kevin, I want to jump to another control that I think we see often that um, you would say, well, that's just common sense, Paul. And a lot of people just don't see it sometimes. It's just the timely review of transactions or the timely review of reconciliations. I cannot think of the last case that I can't think of any case that we've ever had where the reconciliations were done timely on a, on a monthly basis, right? I mean, it's usually, oh, I haven't reconciled cash in 18 months. I'm sorry. If you haven't reconciled cash in two months, we have a problem, let alone 18 months. So I would say there's the timely review and, and the in-depth review. Sometimes we get a little too comfortable with the people that we work with and we're like, oh, I know that that's their best reconciliation. I can just sign off it and go on. But if I sign something that says I reviewed it and I never reviewed it, then I'm just as guilty as the person committing the fraud because I haven't taken the steps and done the controls to try to prevent or detect what is occurring. Now, back to your trust, but verify. Absolutely. Uh, there's no doubt about it. If you're putting your signature on it, I believe you become somewhat guilty as well because you're the one who signed for it. These are some great controls. Are there, are there any others? Because I, I got to warn you too, uh, on the professor payments professor's podium, there's a one magical question I ask everybody, but they don't know it till the end. And it's coming up for you guys. Now, don't want you worried, but let's hear what other controls you got first. A huge one we have not talked about yet. And this one can save so much pain and heartache later down the road is looking at the user access in the IT environment thinking through that, does it make sense that this person has access to this module and that module? And think about who has edit access versus read only. Do they really need edit access? I mean, really comb through that and think about that. And don't just look at it at one and done. You know, we go in and help organizations do these, but it's not just a one and done. You should be looking at changes as employees are added or roles change as somebody transfers from AP to AR. You know, you want to keep that fresh. And really the, a great way to prevent fraud is just not give them the opportunity to do it in the system. And that would go a long way in helping companies. And it's not costly to prevent it on the front end compared to what it costs on the back end to have a wide open IT environment. And I couldn't agree more. Um, I, I too have an IT background, Paul. Granted, mine comes from back in the days of Windows 95, which, you know, was the came right after the abacus. So I, I am a little <laughs> bit dated when it comes to working with computer systems. But even in cards. that time, we, we said, hey, guys, you should be having controls and security controls to the point where it just irritates, just begins to irritate the end user just to where they should call you once in a while. Because if they're not, then you've given them too much. I also remember in those days, in the 90s, when computers were popping up everywhere and taking over a lot of these positions, let's say, or these duties for people, that they would just automatically give full control to everything. That was like the default. Let's just give everybody full control. Because I, I think it goes back to what you said at the very beginning of where we started this. There's just too much trust. You know, we call that in, in our world, we call that least privilege, right? If I don't need access to it, just don't give it to me. I don't, I don't want that. I don't want that information. And I think a big piece of that too, is it takes a, some thought and effort into thinking through, I mean, you've got to make sure, and this is of course a control topic we haven't touched on, but it's overarching is making sure you've got 
good segregation of duties and tasks. And that includes the IT environment. And that that takes some thought. You can't just do that overnight. You have to really understand the environment and from the IT perspective, but also what your staff are doing. You have to really be familiar with that to make sure you're set up correctly. Segregation of duties, dual controls, limiting controls, least privilege. This is some great stuff. I'm loving it. All right. Any other controls before we move on? Because again, this is some great stuff that I hope everybody's taking notes going. I'm going to go back to my business. I'm going to go back to my bank. I'm going to make sure we have them in place because these are things to protect you. I mean, that's one thing too, is I have had people tell me I'm the employee. That's the one that's getting all of these controls put on me. You have no idea what kind of a burden it is. And I'm like, oh, that burden is to protect you as much as it is to protect that business too. Yeah, excellent point. I would say one of the last, well, one of the controls that I will always talk about, and if you've ever heard me speak or um, talk um, and you're playing Paul Perry bingo, then I'm about to hit the Benford's analysis card um, slot on that card. And it's using data analytics, right? And so we have the ability to comb through information at mass amounts of information and do some exploratory data analytics using something like a Benford's analysis, which looks at a, a subset of, of data and says, where are the anomalies? What are the things that don't belong? And if you can employ some of those data analytics into your monthly review of, of information, whether it's um, check disbursements or things like that, it will point out the anomalies. And I've even taken it as far with some companies as um, tell your people you're doing this because that in itself, the communication of these are the controls we have in place will sometimes prevent people from committing. Oh, they've got that in place. They do that on a monthly basis. If I do something and it, and it spikes here, they're going to ask me about it. I don't want that to happen. And so I would just say employ some sort of data analytics, trending analysis, um, Benford's analysis, uh, uh, relative size factor. You name the technique that's out there from a data perspective. And I think it can be helpful for companies. So it's kind of like that. The security camera is on when you see that, when you see that sign, the security camera's on. It doesn't matter if there's even a security camera. People saw the sign. They think it's on. I'm on camera. I was I was working for one company that was losing cash, which is a, a little bit harder sometimes. And it straight cash out of the check out of the cash register. And if you're looking for something that doesn't exist and you have no trail, that's really hard to find. And my communication, and they didn't have a lot of money to spend on a camera system. And I, and I told the owner, I said, just go buy a camera and put it over the cash register, throw some wires into the ceiling, make it look like it's on. They it's a deterrent, right? It's communication that somebody is being um, verified. And, and I say, take those stances because that can also help. And so one thing, too, when Paul was talking about Benford's and other data analytic techniques is that can sound really scary and really daunting to people who aren't familiar with that and don't have a background with that. And so I would encourage people to, you know, not be intimidated when hearing those things and just to look into resources a little bit further on that. And because a lot of it you can do just out of Excel and you don't have to have any fancy techniques or anything like that. You, you can easily run those things. I know when you first hear those, at least when I first heard those, I was like, oh gosh, that sounds really scary. And I'm not super great with computers. And I don't know that, I don't know if I could get, get my you know arms around that, but turns out it's, it's a lot easier than you think. Well, I got to say, I'm impressed. The one of the things that impresses me the most is Paul started off talking about data analytics and made it sound sexy. And he's been able to end on making it sound sexy too. Now, one of the things that I always ask people that come on the payments podium is I know the listeners are out there going, these guys are awesome. I want to be like them. 
So I always ask people, okay, you know, let's pay it forward. And I ask them, what is it that you would recommend to our listeners that are listening to you that are saying, hey, I would like to have a career in, you know, maybe fraud and doing the type of things you're doing. This job sounds really interesting now, the way you've described it. What kind of career advice would you give to them? What would you tell them? This is what I would focus on. This is what I would do. This is how you're going to be able to have a successful career. Well, like you have, what would you say? Sarah Beth's not speaking. I guess she wants me to answer that no, first. So. I can go, but I thought I was going to take your answer. So that's why I was <laughs> going to give you the opportunity. I was going well, to say, become comfortable with using data analytics. I was going to say that's something that would serve you really well. And it's like I mentioned a moment ago, it, do not be intimidated, but you can really add value to organizations. And as soon as that kind of becomes associated with your name, that spreads quickly because people do get so intimidated by it. So I think that's a big thing you could do to help advance yourself in this field if you were interested in it. And I would that and a psychology degree too, I guess. Yeah, a psychology degree would be good. I would say if I if I had to add something that wasn't data analytics, I would I would say just the um the curiosity mind, right? I mean have have a curious have a have a bit of curiosity to what is going on in the business and your business and always ask the questions and always always uncover kind of what you want to do, but, but kind of uncover what's, what's away from the norm and look at that and look at the unusual aspect of your business, your career and what's happening somewhere and, and just question it and, and go into it because the, the, the best fraud examiners will ask a bunch of questions and they'll, they'll eventually get to the right question. And, and so they never stop learning and they are always going, okay, that's a good question. Um, you know, when I'm talking to a business uh, and I want to get out of them that fraud may be occurring, uh, I will say, what keeps you up at night, right? When you ask that question of someone that's running a business, because I can promise you, there are five things keeping them up at night. And sometimes they wake up at two o'clock in the morning in a cold sweat and they've got a uh, tablet next to them and they're writing down what those things are. You know, one of those is where is my cash going and how do I prevent that? And so if you can start to get to just asking questions with whatever business you're doing, then you will get to the point of you're, 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 you're becoming an investigator to some degree uh-huh. uh, and just never, never stop learning. Never, ne- always read. I'm a big, you know, if you ever talk to me about cybersecurity or, you know, um, you know, anything in, in the IT space, I always say education is so important, but self-education is the most important. I think you can sit there and you can learn from folks at a presentation or listening to a podcast, but go out there and read for yourself and try to understand and then go read again. Don't get numb to what's happening, uh, but actually learn from what you're listening to, what you're reading, and, and that will help you. That will help propel you in your career. Couldn't agree more. There's proven statistics that people that take on self-learning are the ones that advance the fastest and highest. Okay, so well, thank you so much, both of you, for coming on. Uh, if you do have any uh, closing comments, I do want to give you the opportunity for doing that. I know all of you out there listening, this is just, uh, fraud is one of the best topics. I tell people, too, that if you want to have a job that a computer is not going to take away, it is actually going to be fraud. It's risk. It's exceptions. It's those things that the computers actually can't really do that require the human intervention. You'll always be employed because, unfortunately, Fraud's never going to go away either. So, uh, Paul, any closing comments from you first? We'll let Sarah close us out at the end of the day. I think that's a great idea. Uh, I would say to the business owners, 
I would say to the business owners that are listening, um, if, if fraud is something that's occurring in your organization and you find it, um, the, the worst thing you can do is feel like you're on an island um, and you are not the only one that this is happening to. And, you know, a lot of times when we talk to folks, they're embarrassed to talk about it. And, and while I get how embarrassing it can be, uh, you got to get some help. You got to find somebody to help you. So, A, just don't ever forget that you're that that you're not going through this alone. Um, and then B, you know, it's that trust but verify. That's the that's the one thing. You know, I have I have three under the age of ten. If I if I ask them if their bed is made, but yet I never go check it, it's probably not made, right? And so I would say those two things to close out. I love it. All right, Sarah, take us home. What what would be I your would closing? Say, comment? All right, this is a very tangible item. So I would say look into a fraud insurance policy because that could serve you well down the road. And there are certain things you need to do to keep that active and make sure you have control, you know, that your controls in place that you're doing your side of that. But I absolutely would say, consider getting a fraud insurance policy. We don't sell fraud insurance. This is not a plug for us to uh, offer that to anyone, but I think it's something that's important and could really aid you in an organization later. And, you know, if you go looking for the right insurance policy, we'll give you the Rogers rate. Okay, bad joke there, folks, I know. Um, <laughs> again, I want to thank you guys for coming on the Payments Post. Devin, this project. has been fun. Thank you. It, uh, yeah, it, it has. It has been fun. It's amazing how much you can learn and how much fun you can have in this industry, too. Okay, for all of you out there listening, if you've got any comments, you got any questions, I'm pretty sure, Paul, Sarah, can we find you guys on LinkedIn? Would they be able to, everybody be able to find you out there? All right, Absolutely. go out there. Um, you can always email me, Kevin at paymentsprofessor.com. If you want to find out more about them, I'll definitely put you in touch. If there is a topic or a speaker, or maybe you would like to be on the payments podium that you'd like to see in the future, all you got to do is send me an email. Again, it's Kevin at paymentsprofessor.com. We've had a wonderful, exciting discussion about fraud. But for now, I have to say, class dismissed. Thank you for listening to the Payments Podium Podcast. Check back every Thursday for a conversation with the Payments Professor. This podcast is hosted and produced by Kevin Olson and edited by Sam Sue Smith. See you on Thursday.